This is former New York Jets defensive lineman Mike DeVito, and you're listening to Play Like a Jet. From Joe Namath's Super Bowl guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee it. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo Elliott. This is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it, and it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene, it's time to play like a jet. Play like a jet? What does that mean? With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparapolis. Welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I am joined, as always, by my tag team partner, six foot two. 265 pounds of shredded steel and sex appeal, Mr. Big John Sparopoulos. John, it's been a while, buddy. How you been? Scotty, it has been a while. Uh, a lot of great things have happened for our Jets in the last few months. That is certainly true. Brand new general manager, Joe Bam Bam Douglas. John, do you feel threatened that he may actually be the baddest dude around the Jets now? Because for a long time, you had that title. Scotty, I think the wrestling term is I have no problem jobbing out to Bam Bam. Taking over as the baddest man surrounding the Jets, Joe Douglas. Big John going down to number two, but I'm sure that you're fine with that as long as Bam Bam Douglas does a good job of rebuilding this roster and putting them into the right position to be title contenders over the next couple of years, right? Scotty, absolutely. I have no problem with him being the biggest, baddest, you know what, on the block. Hopefully we'll see that with the Brooklyn Nets, too. I know a lot of people that are Knicks fans are upset about it, but as a 30-year Nets fan, I am so happy that the Nets were able to land Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and put themselves on the map as a franchise in Brooklyn, really give themselves an identity for the first time. Being down in Dallas as you are, John, I'm curious what the local media thinks. What are their thoughts on the fact that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving somehow found themselves going to the Brooklyn Nets instead of the New York Knicks, or even some other franchise, like perhaps one of the ones out in L.A.? Uh, Scotty, um, zero coverage. The local media is more excited about Zeke not being suspended for the upcoming season and that uh, the basketball team has Luka and the Unicorn. Makes sense. I've always heard that football comes first, second, and third in Dallas, right, John? Scotty and I was uh, crunching the numbers. Potentially uh, comes in fourth as well this time of year. Mm, makes a lot of sense, especially with college football and pro football on the horizon. We get to hear plenty about the Dallas Cowboys down in the Dallas area, not to mention the 655 college programs that are in Texas that everybody is looking forward to watching as well. There are plenty of legends that came out of the state of Texas. 
You could probably fill an entire banquet hall just with banners of the names of these guys. Unfortunately, the list of Jets legends isn't quite as long, but we did manage to get one of them to join us. We did seven parts so far. We're going to jump into part eight. There's been quite a break between the other seven parts, but we're going to try and finish up this series before training camp starts. So part eight today, the career of Wesley Walker, one of the greatest players to ever wear a Jets uniform. John, he has hit us with some incredible stories so far. As I've said many times, I still cannot believe that Wesley was able to do what he did with only one good eye. He was legally blind in one eye and still was able to become one of the greatest players in Jets history, which says a lot about Wesley, but I guess it kind of says a lot about the Jets too because they haven't really had a lot of success drafting overall throughout the years. Scotty, uh, unfortunately, that's true, but hopefully... That'll all change now with uh, Mr. Bam Bam in charge. Let's hope so, and hopefully it also changes with Mr. Sam Donald at quarterback. But I want to keep delving into Wesley's journey because the more we listen to what happened there, the more we can draw lessons for what the Jets may be able to do going forward with Sam Donald the same way that the Jets tried to go forward with a young Ken O'Brien couple of years after he was drafted, which is where we left off the last time we spoke to Wesley. So, John, what do you say? Let's get into part eight of our discussion with the great number 85, Wesley Walker. Geez, Scotty, I'd, I'd love to, but uh, I've got some personal planning I need to take care of. Personal planning, what do you mean? Yes, yeah, Scotty, uh, just that the timing's bad as always. Fourth uh, of July's coming up. Uh, need to go food shopping and have a Big banquet barbecue with a lot of big Texas stars down here. I guess that makes sense since it is the 4th of July today. And obviously, as we've talked about, football's king in Dallas, but so is barbecue. So if you've got a lot of legends that are waiting on you, I know you've got your slow cooker. You've probably had your ribs getting ready to go for the last 12 hours or so, right? Yes, Scotty, the barbecue down here, uh, we like to cook it low and slow. That's the only way to do it, John. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll go talk to Wesley Walker for Part 8 just as long as you save me some ribs. How's that? Scotty, I can't promise you anything on the ribs, but uh, as always, that sounds like a plan, and I'll talk to you soon. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress, and that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. 
Wesley, we left off with the incredible four-touchdown performance you had in 1986 against the Miami Dolphins. The fourth touchdown of that game, of course, coming as the game winner in overtime. And I bet you thought it couldn't get any crazier that season. But, of course, you were wrong because later on there would be a bench-clearing brawl. You played the Bills twice in the rematch. Things got a little testy between your old friend Marty Lyons and Jim Kelly. Right before the half... Marty Lyons tackled Jim Kelly after he released the ball, and Kelly felt like Lyons maybe lied on top of him a little bit too long, so he started trying to hit him and get him off him and yelling obscenities at him. And Lyons decides to retaliate by hitting him a whole bunch of times. The bench is clear. Everything goes haywire. It ends up with 35 players getting fined in all afterwards for the bench-clearing brawl. But this was also a very famous incident because of what the referee came out and said. The referee called a personal foul penalty on Marty Lyons and said personal foul after the play. He was giving him the business under there. And this has become one of the legendary calls of any referee. And it's something that to this day, from what I understand, Marty Lyons gets asked about. Do you remember taking part in that brawl? And do you remember the referee's call and thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you know Marty Lyons, the, the way he is, and it's funny, I was, it's the weirdest thing. Uh, last year, I ran into him. This is the funniest thing. I took my girl to Aruba, and the Jets happened to be there. And Marty Lyons was there. And, and, and I ended up doing this interview thing out there is just the word to say. And one of the things he was saying, the Jets needed some kind of spark, somebody breaking windows and saying certain things or doing certain things. And he was like an instigator kind of like that. And he would do things kind of like firing up the team. Now, I don't think he would do anything maliciously or whatever, but what happens too when you – this is a physical game, and sometimes you do things and just rub people the wrong way. You know, I don't know – that hit was a dirty thing, but Kelly might have taken offense to it. Now the rules have changed, but, hey, if somebody's going to rough me up, I'm not going to take anything. And certainly uh, in that situation, Jim Kelly, he's not going to take anything. And, and Marty can be kind of gruff and overruly, I would say, sometimes, and it can be kind of a detriment. I don't care if it's somebody he knows, because I remember hitting him. Uh, he hit uh, the, uh, Reggie Roby, who was a teammate of his in college, and, and freaking tore his knee up on a interception kind of we got and uh, hit Reggie Rowan and there was a lot of people thought it was a team shot, but that's just the game itself. But I don't know if uh, Marty did it intentionally, but when you play this game, you don't care. It's the it's game. If you have to rub somebody up or rub somebody the wrong way, I've done that myself or grab somebody running and throw them down, and I look at some of the things that are happening today with some of the guys in the heat of battle. You do certain things that you don't really kind of mean, but it's just something takes over during that time, and you kind of lose it. And it, and I don't believe in doing anything dirty, but sometimes it can come off that way. But Marty Lyons was a competitor, and he believed in trying to do things. And if, it, he, if he had to fire up his team, or I don't care if it's breaking windows or just to try to get our players to play. That's what he brought to the table. You had to have laughed listening to the referee say personal foul. He was giving him the business under there, right? 
I don't know, but I mean, given the business, would, hey, we give the people the business every freaking play, so I don't know what that's all about. So, so that does not make any sense to me, and that's what everybody's like. What is giving you the business? <laughs> I think to this day, nobody really knows the answer to that. But one nope. thing we do know the answer to is that when you went to 6-1, and one, you were able to dominate John Elway and the Denver Broncos. Now, John Elway, another member of that famous 1983 quarterback class. We talked, of course, about O'Brien. We talked about Marino. We talked about Kelly. Now, here's Elway. And this is a Denver team that was dominating all year up to that point on offense. They were just throwing the ball all over the place. You guys beat them up pretty good. And this is a team that eventually would go on to the Super Bowl. Did it give you confidence to be able to dominate a team like the Broncos and John Elway and make you think, you know, maybe we're for real. Maybe this is the year. Maybe what we tried to do in 82 is going to happen now in 86. We're getting off to this hot start. and Maybe this is our chance to go to the Super Bowl. No, it always does. You just don't know. And, and then the scary part, you can have success. But then you can fizzle out. You just don't know what it takes to get there, or you do certain things, and it's very. This team is very frustrating, and you could have all this success in the well, and, uh, and especially when you get to the playoffs, or and when you're on that way to let's say the Super Bowl or whatever, and one game could change it. You just don't play. I mean, we've had success against the multiple teams, uh, and and you could play a team that you think you. Multiple times, and let's say the Super Bowls on the time, and you don't win. That's just the nature of it, and you just have to be able to put forth a great effort every time, every time out. I look at New England uh, this past year for the Super Bowl. They come all the way back when uh, I, for the life of me, the team should have never given up those points. They had them, and then something happened. Or whatever, but you have to put the hammer down. That's just the way that you have to know as an individual. Hey, you have to put the hammer down, and when you have it, you have to nail it down. And I don't think, uh, as players, you know, you really know that at the time when you're just starting out. But obviously, as a veteran, and I can't even say as a veteran, knowing this, that we never understood that point of it because you may never get to that point ever again and that's what you have to realize hey guys greg peterson here with the baseball betting podcast as we know the mlb season is back in our lives it's going to be a 60 game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before and i'm going to be giving you picks every single day seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. 1986 was a terrific year for you. You had 12 touchdown receptions. Kenny O'Brien was great again, just as he had been in 1985. And Al Toon really turned into a major weapon. In fact, when the team went to 7-1 and one against the Saints, he had three touchdowns. One was in the red zone, one was over the middle, and one was with speed where he just burned two defenders. I had JoJo Townsell on to talk about 1986, and you can listen to that in our archives now. And he said that one thing that he really didn't understand about the coaching staff is why they decided that Al Toon should be purely a possession receiver because Al was tall and he was fast and he could do just about anything. And JoJo felt like 
If Al had been used more as a deep threat, it would have A, taken some of the pressure off of you, and B, maybe prolonged Al's career because he's a guy that was susceptible to concussions because he got smacked around quite a bit. Do you think that JoJo's comments and his prescription for what the coaching staff should have done with Al is accurate, that maybe they missed the boat by not using him to his full potential? The bottom line is that coaches... You know, and some coaches, they don't see the bottom line. And I don't like putting labels on people. And I always said that Altoon was a big guy that could do what little guys could do. And you could do both. And I always felt like, hey, I can catch stuff on the middle. I can do short stuff and I can do long stuff. It's just they put a label on you. And you shouldn't just determine what somebody can do without... Focus on what what are the best attributes that can be. Uh, Al certainly was one of these big rangy guys, and, you know, you go over the middle and they say the quarterback hang you up and you're going to be susceptible to concussions. But we all have that, that you know, that chance that you could go over the middle and just get messed up by a bad pass or whatever. But the bottom line is that coaches or systems, they put a label on people. As far as I'm concerned, uh, and I'm glad uh, JoJo would say that, I didn't know that he had had that, that uh, concern for Al because we could do both. But if, he, if Al supposedly ran this 4-3, 4-4 four, four, four in uh, uh, the combine, and if you have the speed, to me, you should be able to do both. But they had me as the deep threat, and he was the short guy. And, and there were certain uh, defensive backs would think he was the, uh, wasn't as fast as me, and so he would be the short guy kind of a thing. But to me, you shouldn't put a label on it. You should be able to do both. And so as a coach, you should be able to look at that person and figure out what they can do and be able to utilize both, and that would be my opinion with that. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Let's talk a little bit more about Al and the concussions because we touched on it a little bit. And I know that we've talked a little bit in passing so far about CTE and concussions and so on and so forth. Al Toon's a guy whose career was cut short because of repeated concussions. When you look back now, and I guess this is kind of a stupid question, and I know what you're going to say, but i got to ask it anyway. Do you wish that there had been more knowledge and more care taken by the medical staff and the front office and the coaching staff and even the players themselves towards protecting the long-term health of the players? There wasn't as much knowledge about concussions and brain injuries back then, but your big, strong guys getting smashed around in the head over and over again. Is this something that if you could go back that you would love to be able to make sure that players were better taken care of back then during that era? Absolutely, and I, I wish we had the information. But the, 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 most, the most important thing to me, and after you know knowing what I do know, uh, the, the question becomes when the NFL knew about this, and which they did, 
at a certain point in time. Now, obviously, when I first started playing, this was not an issue, but there was a certain point where this issue was coming up, and there was some questions about the head trauma. There's certain questions that are coming up which the NFL knew about, and then they didn't disclose that, and they're not going to tell you that. And I have no problem about a projection in the NFL, the Shield, and certainly some point with the players, but a lot of times you don't feel like they're really protecting the, the, protecting the players. But I know for a fact that they didn't do the right thing and there was some knowledge of there's something going on with the players that is not right, and they kept it hid. And I don't know the exact date and time that was, and that's the only thing that I've ever said about the NFL is just tell the truth. And that's when this whole thing came out. If you go on the uh, League of Denial, if you, you, you watch the, the movie Concussion, uh, you know that the NFL at a certain point in time knew about this, but were trying to keep it hid and covered. And then when you had guys, I, re- I remember playing against Dave Durson, who shot himself Sal, Junior Sal play. I mean, some of the guys, you hear these stories that played during the time. I mean, Mike Webster was playing when I played. I mean, it was a little bit before my time, but he was playing when I came in the league. And you hear these things, but when you hear that the, the NFL really kind of covered it up or didn't say, and whether they're trying to cover the brand, but where does it come down to you really care about the players? And then you look at the high school and some of the numbers are down with that. I worry about my own kids if they were playing at the time. That's what I want to just give you the knowledge, give you the information. That's the problem that I have. And when you try to hide it and you're not doing the right thing for people and the game is more important or their brand or the money, the business, that's what I have a problem with. I mean, guys have to make the choice. There are going to be guys that don't give a shit about the bodies. They're not going to do that. I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. If I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't put myself to what I put myself to because the way I feel. And people don't know what some of these players are going through. And there's a lot of players who are going through a lot, and they will still do what uh, you probably shouldn't do to your body. But that's their opinion, and that's their decision. I know that I would not, but knowing what I know now, I, I just I just find it hard to even like deal with. But what's disheartening is that if the NFL knew about these things, they weren't willing to disclose these things, and they're still not willing to help or compensate these persons who have gone through these things to keep it in reason they don't want to pay. That's a travesty, but that's the business aspect of the NFL that I don't care about That because, to me, they don't care about the people that play this game that made it the way, and uh, there's got to be something, or whether it's conversation. I mean, I just wish we had an insurance program that we could pay into to help ourselves, but there's a lot of people who are suffering because of this game. And if you knew that this was going to happen or this could be happening and you had any inkling this was happening, you should lift that knowledge out. But they didn't do that. And that's where the whole, as far as I'm concerned, comes in, where you're not going to be straightforward about certain things. And if you look at the history of how this even 
has transformed and how it's unfolded, it is scary. And the people that have been involved and who knew, it's just crazy. But when you can dance around the issues or the commissioner and lie to parents or lie when you're answering questions or dance around the issues and just not tell the truth, I have a problem with that. Certainly, a lot of players have a lot to say and a lot of problems with the way that the NFL handled that. And we're going to talk about that later on when we reflect on your career as a whole at the end. But this being 1986, there were injuries besides what we would later talk about with Altoon, the concussions, including Ken O'Brien. He was banged up and his performance seemed to suffer. And at different points, there was quarterback roulette going on because Kenny was struggling. You had Pat Ryan and Kenny O'Brien going back and forth. And there was a five-game slide. You started off 10-1. and one, You finished 10-6. and six. Did you feel like this was just one of these things where the injuries were piling up because there were a lot of injuries on the defense? Freeman McNeil was banged up again. Kenny O'Brien was struggling. You limped to the finish line, and now you got into the playoffs, and maybe the momentum is not going our way, and you start to worry a little bit. And were people especially concerned about Kenny? Well, I was. I thought we were going to Super Bowl that year. I mean, we're just on fire on both sides of the ball. And if I had to relate anything to that season of why we didn't even get to the Super Bowl, is we got a lot of injuries to uh, our defense. And I mean, we I think it lost Joe Greco, I think mm-hmm. Mark Gaspar, Barry Lasker, Lance Mel, and because we were functioning on both sides of the ball, where we're getting turnovers and field positions, and the offense was clicking. I had 12 touchdowns with like five games left. I'm thinking. I'm going to bust the Jets record. It was only 14 at the time. And uh, and I think the record was 18 in the NFL, so I'm like thinking I get it. I remember when I was going to get my 13th touchdown, I got hit in the end zone by this guy Gray in the end zone and coughed up the football. That had been my 13th touchdown. And we just took a side, stopped throwing the ball. I don't even know what had happened. And we just took the skid. But I related to injuries on our defense because we were really pretty much balanced, but. We have a we had a lot of major injuries on defense. Where also we're not getting the turnovers, the field position, and, and it works hand in hand. And that's what was the best team that I thought we ever had until we had the injuries. And I thought we were going to go. Had nothing to do with Kenny O'Brien. Uh, it was, as far as I'm concerned, it was our defense. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. The defense would show up, and you would play very well in round one of the playoffs against the Chiefs. Kenny O'Brien struggled, so Pat Ryan started, and he did very well. You guys take it 35-15, and then the following week, you go to Cleveland, and this is another one of the most famous games in New York Jets history. Pat Ryan starts the game, but he aggravates a groin pull in the second quarter. Kenny O'Brien comes in, but that Cleveland defense is just absolutely vicious. Nine sacks that day, and Bernie Kosar throws for 489 yards, but the defense played bend but don't break pretty much the entire game, and they held the Browns to only 10 points with 4 minutes, 14 seconds left in regulation. This is a game that's known as the Marathon by the Lake, and we're going to get to why because it was a very long game. But in the fourth quarter, there was an interception that led to a 25-yard touchdown run by Freeman McNeil that put you guys up 20-10. to 10. 
The announcer, Charlie Steiner, proclaimed that the Jets are going to win and go to the AFC Championship. But I guess Charlie Steiner forgot to tell the Browns because they scored a touchdown on a drive that seemed doomed. And the reason it seemed doomed, and Wesley, before we continue with this, I have to get your take on this. It was a second and 24 from the Cleveland 18-yard line. And the drive got kept alive because on that play, Bernie Kosar threw an incomplete pass but for some insane reason, to this day, I still pound the floor every time I think about it. Mark Gastineau hit Bernie Kosar late and got flagged for roughing the passer. And the Browns ended up driving down the field and getting a touchdown. And then after that, they were able to get a late field goal at the very end and send it into sudden death overtime. So before we get into the overtime period, talk to me about that Gastineau penalty. Because if you ask any longtime Jets fan who remembers this game, they will curse up and down about that play. You were watching it from the sideline. You must have thought that you had, if not the game in hand, then certainly a very good chance to win, being up 20-10 to 10 with 4-14 to go. Second and 24 from their own 18, and this happens. What are you thinking at the time? Well, a lot of people were, like, disappointed and bummed out. And uh, I think in my career, I watched, uh, Bernie Kosar or Cleveland come back in certain situations, and it, and when you look at a, a situation when they're backed up in their own end zone and you have a chance to close it out, those things should never happen. And I will even be diplomatic about it. I can't blame it on one thing uh, because we were running the football. We were able to do some things, and then all of a sudden we just, you know, on all phases of our game, we just didn't produce. And I know a lot of people were angry at Mark Gassinol. I don't know how you get a penalty when they're backed up in their own end zone and you let them go that amount of distance to, to come back to win the game, and it's very disheartening and it's just typical of what we let happen. But certainly that uh, plane ride on the way home wasn't very pleasant. And uh, as we're talking, I'm looking at Mark Gassino at our uh, poster of this ring of honor, and I could look at him uh, as like being angry or something they did. Uh, but to this day, I've never been angry at him because I know what it takes. It's just not even one play because that may have been one play that kept their drive for them to score. But there are other areas of our game that we could have closed that out to do certain things that didn't happen. And that's why it becomes a team thing, you know. But you can look at certain plays, uh, particularly in that situation with Martin, you know, roughing the passer to keep a drive alive. That that shouldn't happen. But, hey, it did happen, and it's just one of those things that uh, uh, you, you just can't figure out. And sometimes... I used to sit back sometimes. I used to talk to Marvin Powell and say, I think some of these things are like rigged to be a certain way. You know, maybe it wasn't meant to be. I don't know. I guess it wasn't meant to be because it went into a second overtime. It was sudden death, so it was just going to be played until somebody scored. The Browns missed the field goal, but then they were able to get the ball back and drive down and finally get the field goal. Mark Mosley wins it in overtime, and it was 23-20. to We're just about set to go with the Jets and the Cleveland Browns. The Jets this year, nine straight wins, a 10-1 record. They're just blowing everybody away. And then, wham, five straight losses to end the season. 
Gattenheimer, whose team comes in with the best record, the American Conference, 12 and 4. Counseled them yesterday that the closer you get to the pinnacle, the steeper the grade. They've not won a playoff game since 1969. First down and 10. McNeil, the throw. Yo, back to the quarterback. He can throw it again. Walker, lateral. Man is open. Wesley Walker. And he's got the ball for a Jet touchdown. Looking deep in slaughter. Downfield. Fontenot's open. Herman Fontenot takes it in. And it's a 7 to 6 game. Five minutes and 56 seconds left to play in the first half. Field goal attempt is built up from 38 yards out. And the favorite Cleveland Browns take the lead. 10 to 7. This is good. It'll tie the game. Pat Leahy drills a 46 yard field goal. And that'll do it for the first half. 37-yard field goal attempt. He's 10 for 10 inside the 40 this year. And Pat Leahy gives the New York Jets a 13-10 lead. Browns have not scored in the second half. The last drive ended in the Jets' end zone with an interception. A Bernie coaster by Russell Carter. No! Picked off by the Jets. First and 10 at the Cleveland 20. The Jets still without a turnover. Raymond McNeil breaks it, he's going in! And the Jets, the underdog, take a 19-10 lead. You can see the Cleveland Browns on the bench, despondent. Kevin Max is in, standing up. Second down with 11 seconds left. Mosley pick down the way. It's up and go. And the Browns with seven seconds to play. Rally back and tie the game and we're going to go to overtime. That's the Landis. No, it's no good. Mosley missed a sure shot. He knows immediately he misses it. Second overtime period. Could be down to the end. A 27-yard field goal. Those uprights are 12 yards wide. They got it right now. Look like the distance between two fingers to Mark Mosley. Snap and set down, and the game is history. Cleveland wins it. 23 to 20 in a second overtime period. One of the great victories in the storied history of the Browns. When JoJo Townsell came on, he said to this day, there's not a day that goes by that this game doesn't break his heart because he's 100% convinced that if you guys would have held on and beaten the Browns that day, you'd beaten up on the Broncos earlier in the season. He's positive of the fact that you would have beaten the Broncos again and gone to the Super Bowl against the Giants. Is that the way that you think of that game as a lost opportunity, as something that would have been your best chance to go to the Super Bowl? You have to think that way, and and, and this is crazy. I mean... Uh, and, and it wasn't to you when I had this conversation. Like when we lost in 82 to Miami, we always had success against Miami. At least I did. But that year, you, which I didn't even remember, you said we lost twice against them. So you just don't know. And uh, you have this belief uh, that how you can be. But there's, that's, I just know from my experience, it don't work like that in this league. I, I remember getting beat by the Saints. You know, they hadn't won a game. So you can never take anything right of what it's supposed to be. Yes, we had success. I remember in 82, I thought if we beat Miami, we'd go to Super Bowl, we'd go out and beat Washington. But there's still, there would have been no guarantee that we got the Super Bowl that we had won against Washington. You just have to play that day. So I cannot really say that until you're in that situation. I'm not going to say, okay, all right, we we got to the big show. We, we should have won that game. I'm convinced because we beat 
Denver a couple of times. It just doesn't work that way in the NFL, and that's realistic. You mentioned that the plane ride home was kind of a downer, and I would imagine there's a reason this was called the Marathon by the Lake. It's because it was one of the longest games in NFL history and one of the longest playoff games in NFL history. I would imagine the fact that you guys were winning going into the last five minutes of the fourth quarter on the road, and you had the game seemingly in your grasp, and then this game goes into overtime, there's a missed field goal, and it's such a long game, and you guys are so exhausted— all of that has to be weighing on you guys. The plane ride, you mentioned it was a rough plane ride. Can you give me any specific memories of anything that went on? Because that just seems like something that's an absolute killer from every single direction. Well, the thing is, you know, you you always think of the what ifs. Uh, it's very solemn. Everybody handles it in their different way, and and and, and especially if you have uh, aspirations of getting to the Super Bowl. And in certain playoff games, you have to plan as if you were going to the Super Bowl. And how do you, you're supposed to feel when you're making plans with your family and tickets and this and that. And then all of a sudden, oh, man, this is taken away from me. You're not going. And it, and it, I don't care what playoff game it is. You know, the playoffs, you play a game and you move on to the next phase. But if you lose, there is no tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen. That happened with Walt Michaels. Here's the coach gets one game the Super Bowl, and then all of a sudden you're not there anymore. You don't know if you're going to get there anymore. You don't know what players are going to be there. So it's very disheartening. So you just sit there on the plane saying what if, and you replay everything that you could have done better, what could I have done better. Uh, I, I never looked at blaming people. I know there was a point in time uh, with the quarterback situation when I think Richard Todd had that bad game with all the five interceptions with Miami. People were mad he, he stayed in Florida. But everybody handles it in a different way. Well, I never looked at any blame. I always looked at, damn, what could I have done to, to be better? And so you look at that, and you go through it, and you replay it, and then you say, okay, i got to get ready for next year, and just try to let it go out of your mind. There's part eight of our discussion with Jets legend Wesley Walker, good old number 85. We're hoping to finish this series by the time training camp starts. It's crazy because we started this in January, but because of all the chaos that's gone on around the Jets with free agency, the draft, Adam Gase pushing Mike McCagnin out, Joe Douglas coming in, we've had to take a break from it for all these pressing issues. But now, of course, we are finishing up the series. And I have to say, I think this is one of the best ones we've done yet. What do you think, John? Scotty, uh, absolutely, as our good friend Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson would say, I would definitely have this in the top five. Always the top five, John. Always the top five. Just like barbecue is always going to be in the top five meals in Texas. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say it's probably number one. And the reason you couldn't join me for the interview with Wesley Walker for part eight is because you had a whole bunch of sports legends coming over to do a barbecue with you for this here July 4th. How did that go? Uh, Scotty, it went terrific. We had a nice spread of all types of delicious smoked meats, and a lot of uh, famous folks that came over nice and hungry. Who came over? Uh, Scotty, we had the likes of uh, Nolan Ryan, 
current head coach of the football Longhorns, Tom Herman, as well as a close personal friend who happened to be in town, our good old buddy Rex Ryan. How'd you land all those guys? I didn't even know you knew Nolan Ryan and Tom Herman. Uh, Scotty, I uh, don't, but they uh, smelled the food from my backyard and they wanted to get a quick taste before they hit their road trip. Smart men. I would have done the same thing. Anytime I smell good barbecue, I go ahead and knock on the person's door and ask if I can have some. Unfortunately for me, that usually ends up with somebody yelling at me and telling me to get the hell off of their property, but I think the results are probably a little bit different when you're the head coach of the University of Texas or one of the greatest pitchers who's ever played the game of baseball, right? Scotty, that's right. Uh, Those two folks have carte blanche of the state. No question. I would imagine that Nolan Ryan could pretty much do anything in Texas and get away with it at this point, which is kind of the way that I feel about players like Wesley Walker. The Jets have had so much trouble getting great players over the years that the ones that have gone on to become great players for this franchise, I have to really admire. And I cut them a lot of slack. The Joe Namath thing, you remember a couple of years ago, John, with Susie Culber. I know it seemed a little embarrassing, but as I like to say, Joe Namath can do no wrong in my eyes. He brought the Jets a Super Bowl. Sure did, Scotty, and uh, you know sometimes he might act like that uncle who might be a little bit inappropriate, but you know he means well at the end of the day. Yeah, he certainly does. He definitely wants the best for the Jets. I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. But John, I think it's time you went back to your barbecue, and that I went to my barbecue, and that we both enjoyed some fireworks because this is the Fourth of July. So I would like to say to everybody who's listening, Happy Fourth of July from myself and John. I hope you have. A lot of food that you stuff down your throat. Preferably barbecue is good as what John's got in his backyard. Don't know if you're going to get Nolan Ryan to show up. But if your barbecue is good enough and smells good enough, you just might have a shot at somebody knocking on your door. It may actually end up being me. While you're eating, though, don't forget to give us a five-star review on iTunes. It doesn't cost you any money. It doesn't take you much time, but it helps a lot, so we appreciate it. Basically, what it does is it improves our visibility, so when people go to search Jets podcasts on iTunes or on Google, they see Play Like a Jet, and then we're able to reel in bigger-name guests because they look at all these reviews and realize that it's not just John and I or whoever else is coming on, whether it's Chris Nimbley or Daryl Slater or whoever else, talking into the void that there actually are people that listen to this podcast. So again, if you could go and give us a five-star review on iTunes, would be much appreciated. Also, don't forget to follow on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. Thanks again to Wesley Walker for joining us for part eight of our in-depth discussion on his 13-year career with the New York Jets. We'll be back to delve into part nine next week. And I know Bart Scott's looking forward to that, aren't you, Bart? Can't wait! Bart, I am so excited for when training camp starts because I know you're going to be out there and you're going to be keeping a close eye on things. And very few people have the keen eye for football that you do. Your analysis on all things pigskin is as good as it gets, and this is about to be your time to shine again. That's going to do it for us this week. My name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Sparopoulos. And, John, I believe you know there's only one way that we can end this show. That's right, Scotty. A pleasure as always. Everyone have a happy and safe 4th of July. Brick, break it down. One, two, three. And the hole.